Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, the future of work in the wake of the COVID pandemic. But first, it's Monday, so joining us is our good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, who joins us consistently for a look ahead at the week and the big issues that are on his mind. Byron, always a pleasure having you back on the program. Great to be here, Vago. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy, and our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marines sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Byron, uh, certainly a, an interesting time. Uh, great notes uh, you put out, as, as always, great uh, intellectual uh, work. Start of a week, a lot of dynamics going on. Afghanistan, obviously, uh, foremost, United States getting out of the country uh, tomorrow, all uh, evacuation flights, at least of Afghan civilians, uh, have ceased focus now being primarily on getting U.S. military forces uh, out of the country. As promised, President Biden has made it clear he doesn't want uh, any uh, troops staying beyond the 31st. The Taliban have said the same thing. What, what does global stock performance tell us? Uh, what are markets saying? Because, you know, for, for many uh, this is a, a very, very tectonic moment. It's the end of the Biden presidency. It's the end of, you know, faith in America around the world. Uh, and, and yet uh, markets are, you know, the beginning of a new wave of potential terrorism. Uh, I'm not necessarily judging one way or another whether any of those are true or not. How are global markets responding? Well, it's interesting, Bogan, because I, I took one look at this midweek and then updated it for closing prices Friday. But I just looked at how global defense stocks have performed from August 11th, which was the day that Kunduz fell. That was really the first big city that the Taliban rolled. Um, and, you know, I suppose you could look at, at subsequent dates. But, you know, the bottom line, <clears throat> the Global defense stocks are not really reacting the way some of these dominant narratives, some of them are partisan in nature, are emerging. Um, U.S. defense stocks have effectively been trading in line with the S&P 500 or actually underperformed uh, the S&P 500. Uh, you know, these aren't big numbers. I mean, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, L3 Harris are they're kind of flat down a you know fraction of a percentage point. Um, some of the defense services contractors are up a bit, but again, you know, the S&P 500 is up about 1.4%. Um, it's mixed. Uh, you know, SAIC is up 1.9% uh, over this time period. I, I could walk through it. It's all the thing. And then some of the services companies have had the most exposure to Afghanistan. PAE is, is one that stands out as down 17%. But the point is, you know, A, if there is a belief that Afghanistan has torpedoed the Biden presidency and it's going to be a GOP sweep in the midterm elections and in the in the 2024 presidential election. And there's going to be much higher defense spending as a result of that. The U.S. defense stocks sure as hell are discounting that that prospect. Um, the European stocks, you know, if there's a view that, oh, you know, American credibility is shot, um, Europeans won't trust us anymore. And, and the U.S. is no longer a reliable partner, you would think that if that was the case, 
investors would be bidding up European defense stocks, but the same pattern emerges. It's, they're just not showing any, any material movement. Uh, BAE Systems, uh, Kinetic, uh, and, and Saab Group, which are the, I'm, I'm really kind of focusing on the pure companies. Obviously, you know, some of the major contractors also have aeros aerospace operations there. So, um, but, but the pure defense place, which is where you think investors would go to, are, are just not registering that type of sentiment or narrative. The one market where defense stocks did really show some material outperformance uh, is India. Um, Bharat Electronics and Hindustan Aeronautics are two of the listed companies in that, in that country. They're up, you know, Bharat is up 7%, Hindustan Aeronautics is up 26%. And so you could argue, yeah, people are looking at India as a country that's facing a, a different security environment as a result of Afghanistan. There are other Taiwanese and South Korean stocks that are listed. They're mixed. Um, Israeli stocks are also mixed. Now, Elbit is one that reported, I think, August 12th, uh, better than expected results. So their, their stock is up over this time period. Rada Electronics, which is a smaller kind of radar-based company, is actually down during this period. So I just find that, you know, markets are obviously not uh, the be all and end all here, but they are a collective assessment of, of what some of these uh, events mean, uh, which are still evolving. We still don't really know uh, what, what all this is gonna entail, but, but the markets, global markets are not making the kind of bets that some of these narratives uh, that people are, are raising uh, in Europe and, and in Washington, D.C. Are, are suggesting. What are the implications for demand then, uh, 21 through 23? Well, that's the other big question is, you know, as much as 9-11 uh, reshaped the QDR <clears throat> that was being, you know, in its final stages, I think Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld had to rewrite the introduction to that QDR. Um, you've got to believe that this uh, series of events in Afghanistan are going to change some of the vectors of, of US and frankly, the, the defense plans and policies of other countries. I mean, I, I got to believe the counterterrorism mission is going to be elevated. Um, you're, you're probably, you know, the, the idea of a full US pivot to Indo-Pacific probably gets dampened a bit, you, you know, and again, this all depends on how the Taliban behave, although I, I'm not a personal believer in Taliban 2.0, that there's going to be a kinder, gentler version of, of the Taliban. They're going to be able to effectively govern Afghanistan. And also it's going to have defense uh, spending and security implications for Russia, <clears throat> for Pakistan, for China, for India, uh, for Iran. So, you know, in total, I could look at some discrete things and I think we'll get a little bit more attention. I think obviously, you know, kind of the long range over the horizon strike uh, capabilities that the U.S. Uh, has talked about, that's going to be a new funding area. Um, it may have a mix, an, an impact on fleet mix for the U.S. Navy. Uh, if you suddenly have, you know, you have to start thinking about another kind of standoff capacity for South Asia and the Middle East. Um, maybe some of these big deck amphibs that were going to be under the gun, you know, there might be more rationale for that. I, I kind of laid out some other ideas as well. And it's going to be interesting. This probably won't really get, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how it gets folded into the next uh, national defense strategy, but also the FY23 <clears throat> uh, 
budget that's being uh, wrapped up now in the, in the Pentagon uh, and, and what gets assessed in out year plans? What do we need that's different? Because I don't think anybody, you know, earlier this year had envisioned uh, this set of events in Afghanistan and, and thought through fully what all the defense spending implications would be of that. Um, alas, uh, you know, shortage of foresight is always a problem, right? I mean, a lot of people were warning that this could go this way, uh, but there was a, you know, everybody had convinced themselves that uh, the situation was not as dire and that the Afghan, uh, the government in Kabul uh, would have been able to hold out against the, again, longer against the Taliban. Walk us through what happened besides Afghanistan last week, right? I mean, uh, activity between well, Saudi and Russia, a couple of events worth paying attention to. Yeah. There, so Russia had its Army 2021 show, and I thought the most interesting thing was there was a defense cooperation agreement that was signed between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, there weren't a lot of details on this. Um, you could argue there, there are a couple of different interpretations. Uh, you know, are the Saudis really kind of buying off the Russians from supplying the Iranians? Uh, you know, but also it sends a message to the U.S. Hey, if you guys really think about slamming uh, your defense exports, we we certainly are ready and willing to find other sources, other sources for our security needs. Lidos won an interesting uh, army program for defense against uh, unmanned air systems and, and cruise missiles. I thought that was intriguing because uh, they they beat Raytheon Technologies and Rafael, two companies that you know kind of no uh, air defense, uh, you know, very, very well. So the Lidos one was kind of intriguing. And then the other little industry event that I thought was intriguing was uh, Comtech and Chimeta uh, signed a partnership. Chimeta um, has an IDIQ contract with the Air Force. The ceiling value, I think, is $950 million to provide antennas uh, for JADC2. And, you know, I think a lot of the contractors have said, oh, we're well positioned for this. Um, Comtech also has been providing SATCOM gear. And so this partnership, which Comtech will probably use to help uh, move Kymeta product into defense markets is, is just a reminder about how open um, a field this is and that there are ways for new entrants to, to make their way into this market. Kymeta, I think was actually partially backed by Bill Gates at Microsoft when it was founded in 2012. And there is some activity going on, even though we're approaching uh, Labor Day and kids are going back to college and, and school. What are you watching this week? Well, the House Armed Services will do a full committee markup. Uh, you know, Michael and the rest of the crew talked about it in your, in your Friday broadcast. But chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, um, Adam Smith, is going to be speaking at Brookings on the 31st, and then on September 1st, uh, General Berger, Commandant of the Marine Corps, is going to be speaking at uh, at, Brookings, at CSIS. So, you know, I think the appearance of both those individuals is going to be very timely. Again, kind of referring back to what will Afghanistan mean, it'll be interesting if they express any views or thoughts about how that might be changing uh, defense spending. Byron, thanks very much. Great to have you on. Looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Fago. And a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And joining us now is Sam Cayucci, the CEO of the Sales Huddle Group. That includes the One Huddle Workforce Performance and Training Software. Uh, Sam, it's been a while uh, since we've uh, had you on the program. It's great having you back. Thanks for having me, Vago. 
an absolute pleasure. You know, there isn't anybody who's not actually struggling with how uh, work uh, and the nature of work is changing as a result of, of COVID. Um, you know, the military services and folks in the Pentagon are saying, hey, we're going to travel differently. Uh, CEOs are giving up office space, looking at more flexible space, uh, saying, hey, outward facing customer engagements, we're going to do a lot more of that. But actually, there might be a little bit less uh, work travel. And a number of CEOs have told me, hey, you know what, I've actually been a lot more effective uh, and productive because I'm not on the road uh, four days uh, a week. Talk to us a little bit about your, you know, you guys collect a lot of data. You do a lot of workforce training around the country uh, through your application, but also the, the broader company. Talk to us a little bit about how work has changed and how work will remain changed because of COVID. Sure. It's a very important question given the moment, Vago. The, when COVID hit, we were already on a path. There was already a trend that had begun, which some have coined future of work, you know, across, across organizations. They've talked about future of work technologies. They've talked about future of work policies. Leaders have talked about how we prepare for, you know, the robots are coming. <laughs> it's sort of been right. how it's been coined. And I think that one of the things COVID did is it accelerated the trend. It, it's very clear that, you know, last March, when the pandemic really began, the first thing a lot of companies did was they they downsized. And a lot of companies, uh, in order out of fear or uncertainty, and they reduced labor, they also, as part of that reduction in labor, Vago laid off a lot of the folks responsible for human resource job functions. Those are the people responsible for recruiting, interviewing, assessing, onboarding, training, developing, engaging, keeping that, that whole job function. And I, I think when that happened, um, you saw a major investment uh, begin to accelerate in technology, mm -hmm. which was directly aimed at work. And a lot of these technologies uh, aren't necessarily making work um, you know, more abundant for humans in many ways, they're replacing workers, you know? So I think a, a few right. things I saw, one is I saw an acceleration of technology that took certain job functions away. And right. there's some of those job functions that we should all be okay with. You know, there's certain repeatable work functions that uh, robots or machine learning can just do better. And it allows us to be, uh, to do work that's more inherently human. So I think some that's that's sort of one one thing we saw. The second part is, you know, we saw this downsizing of the human resource function, which means that organizations are going to have to really do a much better job at investing in infrastructure to build right. better coaches, better leaders. Because if work becomes more human, we need managers and leaders that can help those folks develop those skills they need for the work of tomorrow, not uh, continue to invest in skills and training and education that's built for a different decade. So um, talk to us a little bit about how then training is changing, right? I mean, you uh, joined us uh, a couple of years ago and it was a, a fascinating discussion on you know, your app 
uh, actually plays games, but actually uh, does very, very valuable training in, in the course of doing this. Um, we did talk a little bit about how this had a little bit more traction, maybe also for a millennial uh, audience that tends to be comfortable with technology, but sometimes less comfortable in the personal interaction uh, element. Um, you know, talk to us about how the workforce training is changing and how you guys in turn are changing uh, your approaches as a consequence. Sure. It's fair to say, Vago, before the pandemic, companies had a infrastructure around workforce development that largely didn't work. Uh, the technologies that we were using to develop workers were really an outgrowth of what happens in higher learning. You know, you go back 20, 30 years, all these big e-learning platforms, you know, watch the video, take the quiz stuff. They ran out of colleges to sell to, and they said, who do we sell to next? Wow, there's a whole private sector. <laughs> That's what they did. Right. And so that, that was the technology that was largely available going into COVID. Uh, what we saw was since most of that technology does two things. One, it only touches a certain category of worker. 83 cents of every training dollar in America uh, goes to the top of the organization. 70 plus percent of it goes to people who already have a four-year degree. There's only 30% of America that has a four-year degree. So the first thing is most job training and workforce development tech just didn't get to enough people. And the second part, uh, you know, the second part is it's largely desktop-based. You know, so if you think most job training is you got to be kind of, you know, butt in a seat, watch a video, have reliable internet. Be in the right place in the right moment. Uh, one of the clients we worked with at One Huddle was Denver International Airport. All of their workforce training and security protocols, specifically around active shooter, uh, communicable disease, um, bomb threat training, uh, the only way they could deliver it before they started working with One Huddle was by getting all grounds crew people to come across the tarmac into one little training room with 12 computers, right. uh, 12 old Dell computers. And that was how they had to get training in. So where is, it, where is it changing? It's meeting the worker where they are, which means mobile. Pre-COVID, I would always have to wrestle and fight with organizations around the fact that we built a platform that's mobile first. Some see it as a good thing. Some see it as a liability and a risk. You know, the lawyers get freaked out of what happens if a worker does this on their own time. Um, but when everybody started working from home, we saw a clear, uh, you know, flip of the switch. Everybody immediately was on the phone with us saying, okay, we'd like to turn mobile on now. Can we do that? <laughs> so right. I think that that's been, that was like the clearest trend in, in what I'm seeing with workforce training is getting the people where they are, wherever they are, and uh, that means mobile. The, you know, the only other thing I would say is companies are really starting to rethink the tools they're using. Uh, and that includes asking themselves, what's the most effective way to learn? Is it really you know, kind of force feeding material? Or are there better ways to make training engaging, effective, and challenging that gets people up to speed quicker? What has... Uh, right. I mean, one of uh, the keys of any electronic business is a mass of data that you uh, accumulate. Um, what is the data telling you about how your training 
was used, is being used, and how you're adjusting uh, your products and approaches accordingly. We just got done doing our first major formal research study with the University of South Florida. Uh, they did a six-month project looking at what is a more effective way to get a employee up to speed, you know, get them to learn a, a topic. And they took one huddle, which we're a game-based product, and there's a lot of really cool products that are approaching it in a similar fashion, but we are kind of twist as we make training into a game, make it mobile, make it challenging. So they wanted to put that to the test against traditional video-based learning. And after, um, after this six-month study, we just got the results. It's going to be going to uh, publishing here in the next few weeks. They found that you learn 45% faster using our game-based model. And if you were to unpack that for the folks listening, all we do is we believe that struggle and failure are critical parts of the learning process, which means that the way you learn something, how you learn something impacts how long you know it. So if we test you and challenge you, uh, put you through a game simulation on a topic, even if you don't know the answer, uh, while it might be uncomfortable initially, the long-term effects are you learn it quicker and you retain it longer. And they saw this time and time again when they put our game-based methodology up against others. So one of the things we are seeing on the data side is speed matters. Companies need and organizations, uh, whether they're in the public sector, in the private sector, they're in military, it's of critical importance to any organization's mission to get a worker up to speed quicker and that includes lifelong continuous learning. You know, so the way I looked at that data is I said, that's not just a really great data point for onboarding, but think about the airman that's going through leadership training and is trying to get up to speed to move up to the next position and take on the next role, the next mission. They need to be skilled up consistently through their career. And uh, that is where products, and again, what we're seeing, game-based, struggle-based, challenge-based, innovations and in how learning works and then applying it, uh, it without, um, without question can, can play, can make a, a really big impact. Um, let me, um, one, of, one of the things that, uh, you know, you and I have, uh, have talked about uh, before was, um, you know, how the, the military uh, can actually benefit from approaches like this, right? I mean, and, and I should say military training is changing in many ways. Uh, obviously, the organization is, is trying to adapt. Uh, and I think the distance learning uh, and, and people operating as remotely as it did, there, there was an opportunity to, to do that uh, at, at the end of the day. In, indeed, questions about military training are being asked, sadly, in the wake of what happened in Afghanistan. I don't want to draw you into that uh, debate and, and discussion, right? But what are, what are some of these approaches and the changes that you've seen on the government side that could actually yield meaningful benefits of, of training more people more effectively for potentially far less money than we were spending today and actually end up with better outcomes? Sure, and this is really timely. As a technology company during the pandemic, we 
we adapted and continued to not just try to make our product stronger, but we started to do outreach into other um, areas that maybe we didn't have a lot of traditional strength in. And one of the things we did is we stood up a, a gov team that started to pursue opportunities specifically with the Department of Defense. And pretty cool. This is like hot off the press for us. We recently won a phase one and a phase two SIBR uh, and SITR contract. That's through the uh, Air Force has a program called AFWorks and Air Force Ventures. Uh, they have stood up this small business innovation research process that is really a pretty cool program for technology and innovation for DOD. It's a, it's a way for DOD to access fast-growing emerging technologies without burdening those uh, startups with bureaucratic overhead or um, all, you know, kind of all the challenge it takes to build a technology that can effectively sell into, uh, into defense. So they have a special program and there's all different types of initiatives that the Air Force is uh, looking to solve for. And one of the areas is on uh, how they upgrade their training infrastructure and technologies for airmen. So we, again, this is just in the last few weeks, we were excited to um, you know, be in a position where our mobile technology is going to be used by the Air Force. We're currently in the process of standing it up. So I don't can only share so much information, but they will be using our platform for leadership training for airmen. And two of the big parts of it is that it's it's a mobile tool and it's a more effective way uh, to help uh, our soldiers get up to speed. And what do you guys have uh, planned? Uh, right. I mean, you and I uh, spoke uh, have spoken about what your guys' growth plans are. How are you doing? And how did COVID, right? I mean, was it a net positive for you guys, a net negative? What's your five-year outlook uh, look like as a consequence? Yeah, I mean, we took an immediate hit because, you know, with 40 plus million Americans either directly impacted uh, or uh, out of work because of COVID, a lot of what we do focuses on frontline and um I would say workers that are at risk of high churn, workers that are in sales roles, sort of connected to the lifeblood of an organization. So during COVID, we lost a lot of folks that were using our platform. Today, we're in a dozen different verticals from the U.S. Air Force to Lowe's Hotels to uh, the Washington Capitals and Wizards in D.C. So we touch a lot of different areas. And, uh, you know, so there was an initial hit, Vago, but what has happened over the last probably six to nine months is we've seen a pretty significant and clear bounce back. Uh, organizations have now started to stand up their HR teams again. They're aggressively investing in hiring and aggressively uh, by, as a byproduct investing in training and development technologies for their people. You know, so we've seen a really good bounce back. The, the if I'm thinking about five-year plan for us, uh, we are, continue to be very bullish on our product is the, uh, we built a really big product for a really big market for a lot of people right now. And since COVID has accelerated these future of work trends, uh, our private sector uh, stream is only going to get bigger and stronger. Um, but we've also been excited that during COVID, we've stood up these other two legs of the stool, 
you know, we have our private sector, but we've also stood up a focus on the public sector uh, with some of the recent wins with the Department of Defense and uh, what we've been doing uh, at the, uh, the state and local levels, where one of the things we've been doing is working with workforce development boards and workforce development centers uh, within major American cities to help workers who are out of work get skilled up to get reconnected to the next opportunity. You know, so I, I think that COVID really opened our eyes to the impact our product could have in those areas. You know, we went into, we went into the pandemic really thinking about private sector growth, workforce training for employed workers. And you know, here we are just over a year later and we have a real um, lane of focus within the military and a real lane of focus uh, within uh, the kind of sector of unemployed workers, which includes you know, former veterans who are, um, have, have a skill set that maybe they're struggling to show to an employer. And that's sort of a lot of the work we're doing at the kind of state and local level. Sam, uh, best of luck to you guys. Absolutely fascinating what you guys uh, are doing. And you're always welcome back to talk to us about the future of work. It's a, it's a topic I've long been uh, fascinated by. Uh, and it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.